why don't you start by just telling us how long you've been hanging out at Grace? How long have you and Tom been coming here? Um, almost 25 years. That's a long time. Woo! That's good. Old timer. <laughs> so I invited Heather up because I want her to talk a little bit about her experience with Alpha uh, over the last few years. We've done Alpha before. We've never done it as big as we're going to do it here in the next couple weeks. Um, but I just wanted to start by letting you just share a little bit about uh, the past Alpha experience and what God has done through Alpha and just share your story a little bit. Well, I had had some experiences with a lot of non-church people where I just saw how judged they felt and how unloved they felt by Christians. And it makes me really sad. You know, we live in this, if we're in this community, we and you don't have a lot of outside influence, with, and you don't know a lot of people that aren't churched, um, it's a shock to learn that they think at times that we're terrible people. And um, I literally was at dinner one night um, with a colleague that I didn't know very well, and she was sharing how, um, she was sharing about an experience she had with a Christian, and she's like, this, this is a good woman. She said, she's, they're just terrible people. Like, hmm. she felt so judged um, so I was really excited about Alpha. I say that because I was really excited about Alpha because I think what it does is it really draws people um, through love. Right. And um, so when when it was first introduced to us, I had invited everyone at work through an email. Because that was a little bit safer. Very so email safe. works if any of you are feeling a little, a little risky. a little video clip with yeah. Alpha in it. And one of my work colleagues came with me, and she was a Muslim, had grown up in that faith, and... Um, very much had a mom who did not want her to be in a Christian church, and even today doesn't. And she, I, I had felt like God's sort of stirring in her because she would ask me questions about my church and my faith and things like that. And when I first asked her, she said, well, you know what, I'll try it. I'll just come, you know, I have something going on on Mondays, but I'll come like every other time or whatever. And after the first week, she was hooked. She was so drawn by the Holy Spirit. To what God was doing here, and she became saved through Alpha, and she had her husband come to Alpha. Um, so I saw a lot of people really find the Lord because it's just it's 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 a great gentle way, uh-huh. loving way to draw people to Christ. Yeah, a safe place for sure. So um, that's what's happened in the past. We're doing this big blowout. Everyone in this room ought to know. Uh, that there's an expectation that you participate and that you bring some friends because we're going to have 500 guests. But what do you feel like, Heather, God is asking you to do this fall? Well, Penny asked me to um, take on a Tuesday morning group, so I'm doing that. And it was so funny because she came up to me after church one day and she said, would you, would you pray about doing an alpha group? And I said, sure, like right away. Sure, I'd love to. And she said, really? I thought you were going to say no. I don't know why. Guess you have a reputation or something. Apparently. But I also am involved in a book club, like on my street. And I've been in this book club for about almost four years, and we meet every single month. And there's between 13 and 15 women that come. And I don't know where they are in their faith, honestly, except for one. My next-door neighbor and I are starting this alpha group, and so I've begun to invite my neighborhood to alpha at my house. And it's yeah. kind of exciting. It is exciting. It's a little intimidating because, you know, you have to provide food. And um, 
that's not exactly my background, but I have a really good friend who is going to be helping me prepare dinner every Tuesday afternoon. So when the ladies come, it'll be ready and it'll be really good because this person is a foodie and she can cook. Yes. Do I know her? You know her. I do. I didn't know that. That's it's Meg. Oh. <laughs> I'm learning things along the way here. Know that? I didn't. No, That's okay. <laughs> I'll be at your house having dinner on Tuesday. Yeah. Me and all the girls. So what's your encouragement? So the, the, it's pretty intimidating, even for you, like you're doing this, but it's stretching you. What, how would you encourage people sitting out here who are, as Flett would say, are feeling the nudge, but they're like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to. Like, what, what word of encouragement would you have for them? Just really pray that God would put people in your life who might need this right now. And your invite may be not, it may not be received, but that might be a little seed that's being planted yeah. in their lives. Um, I'm thinking about inviting my son's girlfriend who doesn't know the Lord. And that's intimidating to me because she's made it pretty clear that she's not interested in faith. I can't yeah. believe I'm saying that publicly. But it is, it's intimidating. And it's intimidating when why, why are we intimidated? I mean, it's the Holy Spirit that's got to do the work, and I keep going back to that. Yeah. Amen. Well said. So I want you to be inspired by Heather, uh, inspired by God, of course, but how God is moving Heather. I want um, you to hear her story because I think it's really awesome. So would you just thank her for taking the risk and even being up here with me? You, you know what? Uh-oh. What? She's taking over. Heather's going to preach today. No, I was just wondering if you would pray for my book club. If you guys would yeah. pray with my, for me for my book club Let's to get pray all right these now. women to come. Wouldn't that be amazing? Let's do it. Lord, we just stop right now, and we ask that you would um, surprise Heather with the number of people that come, that you would surprise her with the movement of your spirit amongst these uh, ladies as they come and, and have a great meal and just talk about Jesus, that you would do immeasurably more than she could ask, think, or imagine. Um, I pray not only for Heather's group, for all the other groups that are stirring in people. I just, almost every day, somebody says, I'm thinking about, I, I, I want to do it in my home. I, I want to do it here. I want to do it there. Lord, would you just help us to uh, uh, move with boldness in your spirit? This would be uh, just a great movement uh, on the east side of Detroit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I'm going to set this right here. So uh, one more announcement. Uh, you can put that just a little bit closer, Ron. It would be great. Um, one more announcement. We have a goal here to teach every willing third grader on Detroit's each side to read at or above grade level, and we do that through a partnership with SOAR. Um, in order for us to make that happen, uh, we literally need hundreds and hundreds of mentors. So if we were to get to 300 kids, which really is the third grade class that we're um, targeting, we would need 600 mentors. It's an hour a week. Uh, one day a week where you come and literally change the trajectory of a kid's life. So if you have mentored, we need you to just go online. You know how to get a hold of Colleen because you've gotten a thousand emails from her and just say, hey, I'm back in this year. I want to do it. If you haven't, we train you. Um, I had a, a young girl come up to me. I think she was in sixth grade and said, can I mentor? And the answer is yes. Um, we can have sixth graders mentoring uh, first graders. And so I say that to say, uh, we give you all the tools you need. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be a teacher. 
You just have to be willing to spend one hour a week with a kid and change their lives. So we need you. Uh, we need mentors. So make sure you sign up for that. Hey, we are not dismissing Roots today. Uh, we're not doing that downstairs. We're going to kind of launch a new season of Roots next week. Um, but this week, we're going to ask that the junior high uh, stay in the room with us because what we're talking about has implication for you as well. And we just want you to be uh, a part of the service with us this morning. So we're in the midst of a series that we've called Pursuit, and the goal of this series is to explore how we as followers can make space in our lives, how we can carve out space in our lives to pursue God, to experience God more fully. One of the things I've talked about for the last couple of weeks and I want to keep talking about is we, we need a paradigm shift. We need to think differently. If God is one of our pursuits, then we're going to get ourselves in trouble. And the litmus test I used the last couple of weeks is if you find that you wake up with the best intentions, but somehow as the day goes on, God gets squeezed out and you don't really have time to be in the word and you don't really have time to study. And, and at the end of the day, you're disappointed that you didn't get to spend time with God. Then you've made God one of your pursuits. And what we want you to do is think differently. We want you to have a different worldview, a different spiritual view and, and make God your primary pursuit. And as you pursue God, then God is going to change your marriages. God is going to change your friendships. God is going to change your hobbies. God is going to transform your finances. God's going to teach you all of these things. So it's really just uh, throughout this series, trying to get us to have a different mindset of what it means to pursue God. We're leaning into uh, one passage of scripture, which is James 4, 8. We're going to show it to you every week. We want you to, to get it to where it's just uh, known and, and part of your DNA and it's draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But how do we draw near to God? That's kind of what the series is all about, just some of the ways we can do that. So the first week we talked about um, fasting and we challenged everybody at Grace to fast. And we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. Uh, second week, last week we talked about Sabbath and um, Sabbath is more than a day off. So if a lot of you thought you checked the box because you had that great holiday on Monday, probably for most of you wasn't really a Sabbath as we defined a Sabbath. And I'd encourage you if you weren't here to get the tape on that one, that God is looking for something different, important part of our rhythm. Um, and then we're going to uh, move on and talk about something different this week. But before I do that, I want to share. So one of the things I said last week was, uh, send me your experience with fasting. Just send me an email, text message, Facebook me, whatever um, communication tool works best for you. Uh, and I want to share just a couple of them because it's so fun for me to read. And they're kind of just flowing in. I love it. It's great. Uh, so keep them coming. Um, but I just want to share a couple. So this is from a woman. And she said, I heard that you asked the church to communicate you with you regarding the fast. Well, here's me right now. I want some ice cream. <laughs> Cookies or a candy bar. I'm stressed beyond belief and I feel like a toddler. I'm about to have a tantrum. I just want my thing. I am snippy and short with my kids. I feel like a big baby. Oh, and by the way, fruit doesn't help. I feel like stomping my feet and pounding my fists. And um, being the caring shepherd pastor that I am, I responded and said, well, you know who you are when you're fasting is who you really are. <laughs> to which she said, oh my gosh, I'm a big baby. <laughs> and then she went on to tell me that that evening she had had a uh, encounter with a, a dear friend who was going through an extremely difficult thing. And she said, I could feel the love of God going through me to them. I know that I wouldn't have been able to have this encounter if it hadn't been for the fasting. So with all the humor with us playing, there was just this 
opportunity that God had poured something out in here. And I want to read one more. This is from a husband who writes, For the last two months, my wife and I have been experiencing marital crisis with issues fatal to many marriages. When this season began, I reacted the only way I knew how, the James 4, 8 way. I drew close to God and asked him to be my shield, my rock, my refuge, and he was faithful. Early in the crisis, I took a day off of work and a, to fast and spend a day in prayer, and it was the first time I'd ever fasted. And it was exactly how you described at church. God was there with me the entire day. His presence was unmistakable. God exposed my own faults and weaknesses along with those that existed in our marriage. My attitude and my behavior towards my wife began to change immediately. The night of your call to go fast, God told me that I should take up the invitation and fast over my marriage. During the first day, uh, something happened. Every negative thought was replaced with a positive one. I felt the total blessing of the Lord over the situation. By Friday of the first week, I was excited to take my wife on a dinner date. We spent some time talking, crying, apologizing, and forgiving, but we mostly just enjoyed each other's company. On Saturday, I noticed that the negative thoughts, they were gone altogether. Just as promised in James 4, 7, evil had fled the scene. In a quiet moment on Sunday, I told my wife how much she means to me and how much I love her. We are moving forward together. I'm in prayer and in scriptures every day and grant her my love and grace anew every morning. Only God knows what he wants us to learn from this, but I can tell you that I am ready for more opportunities to fast and bring my marriage before God. Is that so cool? So keep them coming. Love to hear it. It's an encouragement to all of us. If you are not fasting, um, no, no shame, not trying to guilt you, but I would invite you. This is about an invitation, not a guilt trip. I would invite you um, to fast the rest of the month. A lot of us are just fasting through the month, month of September. For some people, it's just uh, skipping lunch to spend some time in prayer. Uh, for other people, they've just changed their diet. They're not eating certain foods that they love. Other people have done things a little bit different. So there's all kinds of ways to fast, and we're not even prescribing the how. We're just asking you to participate with us in some way. So if you haven't started, but you still feel that nudge to use Norflet's words, um, I just encourage you to do it for the rest of the month, and let's just see what God does. And part of it is just preparing us for this amazing alpha thing that God is going to do uh, starting in October. So one of the major differences between the last two weeks and this week's, this week's talk is that for the last two weeks, I've talked about disciplines or pursuits that are primarily done outside of the gathering that we have on Sunday morning. So we, we, we are, if we're fasting, we're fasting when we're here, but it's primarily something done in private. It's something done in your home. The Sabbath is something you celebrate outside of the church. You can come to church on the Sabbath, but it's bigger than that. But what we're going to talk about today can really only be done in the company of others. It's really meant to be a part of, of what we do as a church. As a matter of fact, there's only two ordinances in Scripture that we are commanded to do as a church, only two. So if there's only two, then we ought to pay pretty close attention to them. That means that, you know, these are all, the only two things you have to do, then we ought to do those two things. Well, one is baptism. And so the Scriptures tell us that we are commanded to baptize, right? So if you've made a decision to follow Jesus... The next obedient step for you is to be baptized. And we as a church are commanded to, to offer that so that we do it on a monthly basis. And maybe that's what you came to church today to hear, and that's what you needed to hear, and you haven't been baptized. We would love for you to be a part of a baptism service because it's one of the ordinances of Scripture. Well, the other ordinance that's a part of Scripture is something called communion. 
or what you maybe grew up knowing as the Eucharist, or maybe you called it the Lord's Supper, different names, but basically the same thing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and we're going to talk about how the communion, how the Eucharist, how the Lord's Supper is a discipline. It's an opportunity for maybe more than what you realized. Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to read verses 23 through 29. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. If you use an electronic reader, iPad, iPhone, we're good with all of that. Uh, We want to encourage you to tweet, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is that you do on social media. We want to encourage you to do it and feel free to do it while you're here in church. So if God stirs in you, if you hear a a phrase, if God whispers in your ear, then send it out there. And, And our desire is to use social media to reach our friends. We're going to take back something that maybe hasn't been always used for the best thing, but we're going to make it for the best thing. So if you feel like tweeting while you're sitting there, more power to you. While you're looking for uh, 1 Corinthians 11, I want to just cover a couple quick observations. One of the problems or pitfalls we have is if we're not careful, we allow something that is familiar to us or regular to us to become routine it becomes a ritual. And the first thing I want you to know, if you could write it down, that's great, is that communion is not a ritual. Okay? Communion is not a ritual. And here's the scary part. If we approach communion as a ritual, just something that we do on a regular basis, it actually puts our physical and our spiritual health at risk. It actually can cause problems in our lives. I've actually found in my own journey communion to be uh, one of the most uh, life-giving things that we do as a church. There's been many a moment where coming to the communion table has just been a defining opportunity for me and something that was going on in my spirit. And so what I want to do is kind of set the table, to use a pun, I guess, and uh, just sort of help you to think through, well, what is it? If it's not a ritual, what really is going on? What is communion? And why is it is it so important? And what, what, what ought we to know about it if it's so important? It's 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. Paul writes these words. He said, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whether you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's a powerful statement. Whoever drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So we ought to figure out, well, what does it mean to partake in a worthy manner? A man ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread or drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Let me pray. Lord, I love uh, this beautiful sacrament that you've put into place. I love communion. I love the meaning, I love the history, and I love what you've done with this. And Lord, today as I unpack just a little bit of this, um, I just pray that you would draw us into the the beautiful invitation that it is to participate uh, in the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Help us to know what you're up to in the midst of this. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's not part of my notes, um, but I actually think if we get it, if we really get it, I believe that when people come down and take the cup and take the bread, they will experience physical healing. That's what the scripture actually says. That, that not only, and we see it's kind of a warning in here, and, and Paul even says that if you, do, if you do this the wrong way, that's why many of you are sick. But, but I think there is this, there is something supernatural that's going on when we take communion. And, and we got to understand what that is. But there's an invitation in here to receive something more than just a cup of juice and a piece of bread. And that's what I want you to kind of hold on to today. So as we go through this, so look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. One of the things that we have to do if we really want to understand what communion is, we have to go back and we have to see this ordinance when it was put into place. We have to see it in the original context. So you can't really understand it unless you go back to that upper room. What we all kind of know is the Lord's Supper. You know what I'm talking about? When Jesus gathered with his disciples. So what does Paul do when he's instructing the church in Corinth? He takes them right back to that moment when Jesus was in the upper room. He says, on the very night that Jesus was betrayed. And what he's helping them to understand is that, that Jesus knew exactly what was going on. So what did he do? He, they went into that room and they were getting ready to, to celebrate what's known as the Passover meal. Jesus had sent the disciples ahead to make preparations, it says, and they were making preparations for a very organized meal. But if you go back and you read the gospel accounts, what Jesus does in that dinner is he explains to the disciples everything that's about to happen. He explains to them that some of them will, one of them will betray him. He explains that others will, will be scattered. He talks about his own suffering. He talks about the fact that he's going to die. He explains all of that. Well, why did he explain it? Well, he tells them why. He says, I am telling you all of this so that when it happens, you will know that I knew it was coming. What he's saying is, I am in total control. Everything that's happening and everything that's about to happen is happening because God has put it in place, because I'm allowing it to take place. And he didn't want the disciples, and he doesn't want us to think that this is some just mere circumstances, that he's just the victim of, of some kind of oppression and that it just happened to him. He wants to make sure that, that they know and that we know God is in control. Jesus is in control knowing full well that he was going to endure the cross and that his closest friends would be scattered and they would deny him, he still offers his life for them. And Paul says he took the bread and he broke it. In that room, as I said, they were sharing what's called a Passover meal, a, a meal that had been shared every year for some 1,400 years. Once a year, Jewish families would gather and they would have this Passover meal and they were in that upper room and and they were celebrating. They were celebrating and they were remembering. They were remembering that God is their provider. They were remembering that God did all this. And so there was sort of a, a formula, if you will, a, a ritual, a way of doing the meal that was pretty much the same in every family. And while the words might be a little different, it would always feel the same way. And one of the first things that happened when they would sit down at the meal is the host, in this case, it would have been Jesus, would have taken one of the loaves of bread that was part of the meal, and he would have broken. Now think about this. The bread itself was unleavened bread. It means it didn't have yeast in it. And yeast in the scriptures is another name for sin. So we have a, a loaf of bread that has no sin that's been broken, right? 
And so the host would take that piece of bread and he would wrap it in a clean white linen cloth and set it aside. And this piece of bread would be brought out at the end of the meal. It was actually called the dessert bread or the afikomen is actually the, the real word for it. But every home, every Jewish home would have done the same thing. Here's the bread, it's taken aside. And if you were to do a Seder meal, if you've ever done a Seder meal with, with a Jewish family, they actually still do this. They wrap the bread in the white linen cloth and they hide it in the house somewhere. And then when the end of the meal comes, the kids go and they try to find this broken piece of bread with no yeast that is buried somewhere in the house. I'm pretty confident Jesus probably didn't do that with the disciples because it probably would have been a little weird. Um, But I'm sure he wrapped the bread. I'm sure he set it aside because that was going to be the dessert bread. That was going to be the bread that that they were going to break out later in the meal. And you could ask yourself, well, why doesn't the Bible tell us that that's what happened. And the reason is because they didn't have to. Because when something is so familiar to you, you don't explain it. So let me, let me explain it this way. If I were telling you a story about Christmas, and I said, uh, last, late November last year, I bought Mega Present, or late December, I bought Mega Present, and I wrapped the present, and I put it under the tree. What tree did I put it under? Say it a little louder. The Christmas tree. How many people thought that I put it under the oak tree in the front yard? No one. Not one person in the room thought I took it down to the lake and stuck it under a tree. Nobody even had to say, well, what tree? Because we're so accustomed to Christmas. When I say tree, you automatically thought of a cone shape, probably a pine tree, either fake or real, that was brought in the house. As weird as all those traditions are, I don't have to explain anything. Matter of fact, if I had explained it to you, you would have been like, I know, I'm not stupid. I know what a Christmas tree. If I just said I, I bought a present, I wrapped it, and then I, I got this tree and I put it, we call it a Christmas tree. It'd be like, yeah, I get it. Well, in a lot of ways, that's what's happening in the scriptures. There are things that aren't included in the scripture because every first century Jew would have known exactly what's going on. So there's, there's these moments throughout this telling of the story that we have to go back and we have to see the history. We have to see what was going on and we have to bring it in because they don't, we don't know the traditions the way the first century Jews. So there was this bread and it was wrapped and it was set aside. The scripture says in verse 25, says in the same way, after the supper, so picture this, the dinner is over, right? So if the dinner is over, then the dessert bread's coming back to the table, right? It says after the supper in verse 25, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. What cup? Again, this would not require any explanation. When the writers of the gospel, when, when Paul says the cup, every Jew would have known exactly what cup Jesus was holding. So the Passover meal was a, a meal of remembrance. It was a meal for the families and the extended family to all be in a room to share the story of the Passover. The Passover is that liberation from slavery in Egypt. They were said, every year I want you to come together and I want you to eat a meal in leisure and I want you to tell the story. Well, this is pre-printing press. This is pre-Xerox copies. This is pre-literacy for most people. So the only way to, to, to hand down a story was to do it orally. And the best way to remember a story is to remember it with props, some type of prop, some type of thing. So after a while, once you hear the story, anyone could tell the story. And so the Passover story was told by using four cups. And each cup represented a chapter of the story. So, 
they would start the story by holding up the cup of slavery. And they would talk about when they were slaves and they would talk about the oppression of slavery and the burden of slavery and, and, and just how awful it was. There would be an expression of, of just how God's people were oppressed by the Egyptians. And so that would become the first chapter and they would walk through that and they would remember. And there was, there was other parts of the meal that they would take with bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of, of slavery. But all of that was so that they would have this physical and emotional and mental remembering of this story. So they would go through the first chapter, the, the chapter of slavery, of oppression, of bondage. Say, remember how bad it was. Remember what it was like to be in bondage. And then they would go to the second chapter, and the second chapter was a cup of plagues. And they would literally just walk through each one of the plagues, and, and they would say what the plagues were. And at the end of each plague, they would say, but Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he wouldn't let him go. But then they get to the last plague. The last plague, you remember what the last plague was? It was the death of the firstborn son. Through the death of the firstborn son, you were set free from slavery. Does that sound familiar? It's a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the death of the firstborn son. And they would tell the story of how they were spared. Do you remember how they were spared? They were to take a lamb without blemish. And they were to slaughter the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it over their door. And then the angel of death would pass over them. They were spared from the curse by the shedding of blood, a foreshadow of Jesus himself. They would eat a meal. And after the meal was done, they would move to the third cup. 1,400 years this cup was held in the hand of the host and they would talk about the cup of sacrifice. They would talk about Elijah's cup or sometimes called the Messiah's cup. So the host would say, someday. If you go to a true Jewish Seder meal right now, they will still hold the cup and say, someday the Messiah will come because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. We know that he is, but so the, the host would hold the cup and they would say, someday, someday the Messiah will come and and he will rule on David's throne. He will be our king and, and we will be his people. So when Jesus held this cup, when we see that passage in the gospels and we see it in 1 Corinthians, it says, and Jesus took the cup, this was the cup. It was the cup of sacrifice. So the meaning was so much richer when he said, this is my blood. You know what he said? He said, I am your king. I'm the one you've been waiting for. You've taken this meal year after year for 1,400 years, and I'm here. I'm the one. I know it's going to get messy here for the next few hours, and you need to know that I know that, and I'm telling you it's going to get messy so that you'll believe that I was in control, but I want you to know I am the Messiah. I am the one who comes. When Paul and the Gospels point towards Jesus taking the cup, every Jewish person would have known it's no ordinary cup. They would have known that Jesus was proclaiming that he was the Savior. The Passover meal was way more than just a ritual. It was an important 
part of the people remembering who God is and how, how that God is their provider and God is the only one that can bring them through those difficulties. It was, it was so important, but it was a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. So when we take communion, we are extending a tradition that goes back 3,400 years. It's an amazing picture of God's faithfulness, of, of God putting something into place for all of us. Jesus says, every time you take of this cup, every time you eat of this bread, remember, remember the bondage you were in? Remember what life was like without me? Remember what happens when you take your eyes off the cross? Remember how hard things were before you knew me? Remember that I am your salvation, I am your strength. So Paul has this directive in verse 28, the passage we read. He said, a man ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread or drink of the cup. Every time we come to the table, we are commanded to take it seriously, to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, God, how am I doing with you? Where am I grieving you in my life? What sin is in my life that I need to leave behind? Where is there bitterness? Where is there unforgiveness? Where am I stuck, God? Where, what are the things that I need to leave here at the table before I take of the cup and of the bread? And what Paul's saying is if you don't take that seriously, you are literally putting yourself in harm's way. And what I would say is when you have an opportunity to unload bitterness and unforgiveness, you will have better health spiritually and physically when you can let that go. And this is just a great opportunity. Every time we have communion to examine yourself and ask the Lord, what is it you want me to leave? And what is it you want me to receive from you today? It's a beautiful picture of what's gonna take place every time you come to the table. The fact of the matter is I believe this remembering is the baseline for every healthy relationship in our lives. If you are not aware of how broken you are, if you are not aware of how much grace God has extended to you, then you are unable to love people with a measure of grace and forgiveness. The more you remember what bondage was like and how God set you free, the more you extend that same thing to other people. The more you know how broken you are, the less judgmental you are of other broken people. And I think of what, what God, I don't think, I know what God was up to. He said, look, I want you to come back to the table over and over and just remember your own depravity and remember how much I loved you and how much I extended grace to you. Because when we really understand that, we become coming loving and graceful people towards others. I don't think ministry can happen unless it starts with this understanding. I don't think racial reconciliation happens unless this, this is part of our understanding. So we come to the table to remember. Remember what it cost Jesus to save you. Remember the lengths he went to in order to call you a son and a daughter. So remembering is an essential part of the Lord's table of the Eucharist. But there's another piece to this whole thing. We are to remember because when we remember it recalibrates our hearts. It kind of resets our true north. But if you look at verse 26, there's another piece to this. It says, for whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we remember and we proclaim. 
it's an opportunity to tell ourselves and to tell others in the room the gospel story. It's a proclamation of Jesus. The Passover meal was a proclamation of the Messiah that was to come. And so that tradition continues. We proclaim to the people in the room what's happening. So the band's going to come up. Norflet's going to lead us in another song. And just so you know, uh, the fourth cup is the cup of praise. So if you read the gospel accounts, it says that the disciples went away singing a hymn. That's because they got to the fourth cup. And so they sang a hymn. So we're going to sing and we're going to take communion together. But while they're coming up, I want to read some psalms for you. Because I want you to see the, the words of proclamation that exist all throughout the scripture. But Psalm 9 says, Sing the praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. Proclaim aloud your praise and tell of all your wonderful deeds. Psalm 35, my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praise all day long. Psalm 40, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I love that one because to me that's like church. That's like the mission statement of taking communion. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord. All people will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder, ponder, think about what he has done. Communion is an opportunity for us to live out the Psalms. It's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves and to invite the living God into helping us to understand where we're pleasing God and where we are disappointing God. What do we need to leave and what do we need to take with us? So, if you are a server and you want to come down, that would be great. And we're going to do things a little bit different. Uh, we're going to take communion in a little more of a lingering fashion. Um, so if you want to sit where you are for a minute, that's okay. You can let people go by you as they come. If you have made a decision in your life to walk with Jesus, then communion is for you. Whether you are a member here at Grace or not, uh, that doesn't matter. But we're going to ask that you examine yourself. Spend a little bit of time just asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to see today? And then we want you to come down. So if you're in the, on the main floor, just come to the middle, come down and go back out the sides. If you're on one of the wings, just come towards the middle, come down. Again, if you're not ready to come, let the people pass in front of you. It's okay. You can come, you can take the elements, you can go to the side and take them there. You can take them back to your seat. We're not prescribing exactly how all that should happen. We just want you to take it linger with the Lord, to pray, and to receive all that he has for you as we take communion together. Lord, I thank you so much for uh, this rich sacrament that you've placed in front of us. Thank you for the literally thousands of years of tradition that are behind this. Lord, help us to never see this as a ritual. Help us to take it serious. Help us to invite the living God to examine us, to help us to see what do we need to leave behind and what do we need to take with us. So even now, maybe for some people, this will be the first time they've ever had that understanding of what communion is all about. May it be a fresh, renewing, empowering, healing life-giving moment. Lord, I believe there are people in this room that just need a healing touch from you. May the moment they bite the bread, feel the warmth of your spirit, cover them. May they experience physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, Lord. You are a good, good father, and you invite us to participate 
In Jesus' name, amen. Come as you feel led.